Welcome to the International Bus Podcast, brought to you by Wordbee. This is your co-host, Tanya Falkner. And your co-host, Robert Rogge. Our guest in today's episode is Kate Edwards. She is an independent consultant in her own company, Geography, and also an executive director of the Take This organization. She's the formative the former executive director of the International Game Developers Association, a columnist for multilingual, game industry advocate, geographer, culturalization expert, and event speaker. Thank you for joining us, Kate. Thank you very much. So to kick things off, I guess let's just start with uh, Geography, what you're doing in Geography and how you got into games. Sure. Well, thank you again for asking me to participate. This is, I, I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk about my work. And um, this is actually 2018 is the 25th year of my time in the game industry. And it's the 30th year of doing culturalization work. So a couple of milestones for myself. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So Geography is my consulting company I created when I left Microsoft in 2005, where I was for 13 years. And basically, my focus is to help developers of content, not just games, but any kind of digital content or otherwise, make sure that they're accounting for the cultural and geopolitical aspects of their work. So basically, what I mean by that is I'm helping them maximize the reach of their content by looking for things that might make the content incompatible with certain markets. Like if you put something in there that will be offensive to the consumers, you do something that's going to piss off a local government and they're going to ban your product, all kinds of things like that. It's what I call reactive culturalization, kind of looking for the reactive aspect of the content. But also I help companies with something they... I call proactive culturalization, which is actually looking for ways to enhance the experience for different markets, depending on the priorities of the company. So like if they wanted to make their product more appealing, say, to the Thailand market, I can help them with that as well. There's not as much demand for that because more and more companies, they're starting to get a sense of that that's something that they should do. But frankly, a lot of companies are still too focused on what they should not do and what they're afraid of. <laughs> and they should be. So I entered this field kind of in a really weird way. I never intended to work in games. I never really intended to do this kind of work. When I left high school, I wanted to be a conceptual artist for Lucasfilm because I love Star Wars and I had the artistic skill. And so I did industrial design for a couple of years. And um, that was after doing aerospace engineering for a year because I also wanted to be an astronaut for real. But that didn't happen. So... <laughs> And so I did industrial design and I picked up the skills similar to the artists at, at Lucasfilm and then, but I just got disenfranchised with that particular program. So I changed my major to geography and cartography because I've always loved travel and maps and culture and, and with cartography, I could still use my artistic skills. And so I just kind of headed off in that direction. And, you know, eventually I went to graduate school, which took me from Southern California to Seattle. And I was doing my master's degree on virtual reality and cartography. That was way back in 1991. So kind of during one of the earlier waves of VR. And uh, after I started working my PhD, that's when Microsoft contacted the geography department at the University of Washington and said they were looking for a cartographer to work on a card encyclopedia. And so I ended up going over there initially as a contractor 
making the maps uh, for Encarta. And then that turned into a three-year permatemp contract position where I was the cartographic lead on Encarta. And then they offered me a full-time position doing this geopolitical specialist work which is something they basically asked me, what would you want to do? And I asked them, well, what do you need me to do? And they said, well, we, we really want you to focus on the geopolitical sensitivities, which is something I could do as a cartographer. I knew this stuff. And so I was the one who was looking out for how different boundaries on the map and, and disputed islands and controversial place names and all that stuff could be potentially problematic for the mapping products at Microsoft. But once I was in Microsoft doing that job, I started getting questions from all over the company from about all kinds of things related to culture and geography. Like, hey, is this flag okay to use? Or is it okay to use this gesture as an icon? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I found that I could answer a lot of those questions. And if I didn't know the answer right away, I knew where to find it. It turned me on to the idea that the company needed an internal resource to focus on this kind of risk exposure because nobody was covering it at all. Mm -hmm. The localization people, they were as, you know, as is their job, they were primarily focused on language and not necessarily all of this, uh, these other issues that kind of are, that also pop up around culture and geography and, and also language to some degree. And so I, that's when I created an internal team called geopolitical strategy at Microsoft, which that was almost exactly 20 years ago when I created that team and so my job was to basically help all the products and all the locales at Microsoft deal with these kinds of issues, looking out for sensitivities, things in the products that might be a potential problem. And so initially I was working on all the major Microsoft products, you know, work, Microsoft Office, IE, I mean, all of that stuff. I worked on Flight Sim because at the time it was the only game that Microsoft had, but then they made the acquisition of the PC games and I started working on those things like MechWarrior and things like that. And um, that's incredible. I remember playing MechWarrior. Oh, I love those games so much. Yeah. So much fun. And then, of course, when the Xbox project got started up and, and that whole effort, well, all of that stuff also fell under my responsibility. So for me, it was not easy to get their attention because they were at first kind of like, we're games, we're different, we, we're okay to be edgy. And I'm like, well, actually, you're not because you're still Microsoft and yeah. you're still going to get us in a lot of trouble. Well, and, um, and in games, in, for example, the interface of a computer program, there's only so many things I think probably to look at. But in games, there's a lot of risk exposure in terms of culturalization, I can imagine. Absolutely. There's so many different dimensions where something can pop up. And so that was when I really kind of walked backwards into the game industry by doing this culturalization function at Microsoft, but myself being a gamer since Pong showed up many years ago when I was a kid, I mean, this was like the absolute perfect job for me. I was doing what I love, which is this culturalization focus, but I was doing it on games, which is something that I really enjoy. So I ended up working on pretty much every major franchise that Microsoft did on PC and Xbox until I left in 2005. And then I just started my consulting and started, uh, when I left Microsoft, I did decide consciously to focus primarily on the game industry, just because that's where my heart is. Even though even to this day, I would say 25, 30% of my consulting is still pure cartographic work. I went to Google as a vendor for six years and created their geopolitical team because they heard what I did at Microsoft. And, um, helped with them with all kinds of issues in Google Maps and Google Earth. And then I've gone on to help Amazon and Facebook and other companies as well with these kind of things. 
wow, <laughs> that's really massive. I mean, you had all the big players out there. <laughs> it's interesting because it seems like culturalization is some kind of an overlooked topic and not, I don't know, I feel like not many people know about it, but it seems like it's something that every company could totally use. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because that's often the reaction I get. Because when I tell somebody, it's like, well, what do you do? It's like, well, I do culturalization. Like, what is that? So, I, you know, when I give my little elevator speech and I, I explain to them the basics of what I do, they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds really important. And I'm like, well, it, yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's kind of like the most obvious thing that most companies don't realize, mm. you know, but once I tell them what I do and kind of give walk them through examples, because over the course of my career, I've got tons and tons of very concrete examples to illustrate my points, then they're just like, oh, yeah, we should be doing something like this. I'm like, yeah, you probably should. <laughs> totally. Could you, actually, could you tell us a couple of these examples you had, like the best of, so that everyone really understands what it's all about? Yeah, there are so many. I mean, one of the ones that's kind of classic is when on the original Age of Empires, the game came out in 1997. And I was those were just awesome games to work on. I worked on the entire series of Age of Empires and Age of Myth. But in the first version, we released the game in Korea. And the Korean Ministry of Information, they rejected the game and they be over one scenario that was in the game. And there's one historical scenario is where you're playing the Chozon Empire in the Middle Ages, which is in Korea, and you get invaded by the Yamatos from Japan. And now history tells us that that was an overwhelming battle where the Yamatos just flooded onto the Korean peninsula and basically took over and almost completely took out the Chozon Empire. Not completely, but almost. So that's what history says. The Korean Ministry of Information said that never happened. So <laughs> Even though it's like we, the Middle Ages, right? Like it was a yeah, long time ago, but... <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is one of the points I often make when I give lectures on this topic is that, is that history has a very long tail, especially in cultures that have a very rich, deep history. You know, obviously in like North America, where our history is very, very recent comparatively, we just don't have that kind of same perspective. Whereas in a lot of other cultures, you know, like in the Middle East or East Asia, I mean, they're... They go back millennia and they, yeah. they have, you know, that kind of direct lineage to their past. Yeah, um, Americans, I think, are particularly uh, vulnerable to overlooking those kinds of things. Because like you said, our history is very short. And also mm -hmm. we tend to like assimilate uh, cultural artifacts from other countries' past, whether yes. it's like philosophers or, you know, for us, it's like if you're talking about Pascal or Nietzsche, it doesn't really matter. But if you're in, grew up in France, you're going to learn all about Pascal. And if you grew up in Germany, yeah. you're going to learn all about Nietzsche. Exactly. Well, it was funny with this example because we had to make some really key decisions. Like, what are we going to do here? Because the government's basically asking us to change history. Now, in my function kind of had to be the voice of reason <laughs> in a way, because, you know, a lot, uh, you know, some of the knee jerk reaction was, no, we're not changing it. You know, there's no reason where this is history. But then, you know, we have to step back and look at all the other factors that are at play. So for example, what is Microsoft's goal for this game? Well, they obviously are trying to build a global franchise. What are their goals for Korea? Well, we know that from market research at the time that real time strategy games were very, very popular in Korea. And if anyone knows their game history in Korea, a year later in 1998 is when StarCraft, the original StarCraft came out and that became a national phenomenon in Korea. 
And that's a great example of a real-time strategy game. So we knew that it was a type of game we wanted to release. We knew it was a market that was important for gaming. And so we had to make a decision. You know, Basically, the decision was we are going to release this game. So we had two choices. We could remove the scenario, which is difficult to do. Um, or we could just release a patch which alters the scenario. Mm. And so that was the decision we eventually made in which the for the Korean version only, in that version, the Chozon Empire invades southern Japan rather than the other way around. Huh. And what was fascinating, though, is the dialogue that happened internally about the nature of truth, like capital T truth and ethics and things like that. And and I had to remind the team that just a few years earlier when I was working on Encarta Encyclopedia, in the French and Italian versions of the encyclopedia, they had different heights for Mont Blanc because at the time the governments did not agree on the actual physical height of the mountain. So we had to put different facts in different versions. And so I was like, well, how is this much different? You know, this you're basically serving the local expectation more than serving what you perceive to be as the truth. Mm. Well, that's really interesting because I think in in any kind of sales and and marketing or in this case, culturalization, which is, I think, related, you know, you're trying to serve your customers, you're trying to, you know, solve their problems or make them happy or whatever it might be. But there's an element of maybe like manipulation in it that's like inherent in in marketing and advertising and sales. And uh, it's an interesting ethical quandary to be in. It is. I mean, because, I mean, let's face it, it does bring up the issue, like, in that particular scenario, are we basically serving up propaganda by the Korean government? And from one perspective, yes, that's exactly what's happening. And that's focused at the Korean people. And unfortunately, for some markets in which we deal with in today's world, that's a gateway to release your product, is that you have to basically follow the government line. There's a lot of other examples. So say, for example, in cartography, the northern area of India called Kashmir is disputed between China, Pakistan, and India. But according to Indian law, you must show the Kashmir area as Indian territory without any dispute. And that's a fiction. That's what I call the geopolitical imagination of the government. But you have to do it if you want to release any product that has a map in India. And China has the same same requirements, too. You have to show Taiwan as part of China. You have to show certain disputed areas as part of China. You have to show the entire South China Sea as belonging to China. And so there are requirements like this already that have been in place for decades all around the world with different governments. And a lot of people just don't know about them explicitly. I mean, there's there's a lot of it has to do with cartography and, and map-based stuff. There's a lot of other culture-related stuff. So these requirements are out there already, and a lot of companies who know about them have just kind of been quietly following them for a long time. But every once in a while, a particular product or issue will come up, which kind of really highlights that dynamic, you know, between the company wanting to release their best, most accurate version, and they hit against this wall of government requirement. In some cases, it's actually a law that you can't get around. So you do, that's where it goes back to the corporate strategy. Do we want to sell products in this market or not? And when you're talking about markets like India and China, for most companies, especially China, companies bend over backwards to make sure the government is happy so that they have access to over a billion people. This is super tricky. I mean, you have to kind of have to do it in order to sell their products there. But on the other hand, 
I guess you just have to kind of choose what's more important. Sticking to the truth or selling your products there. At the same time, if you just go with what the countries want you to, the question is, will it ever change? I mean, well, it, like it could. Kind of getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, it could change in time. You know, you brought up a very good point, and that's one of the things I coach a lot of companies on. A lot of whether they're game developers or big companies or whoever they are, I advise them on this nature of, for lack of a better phrase, the moral compass of the company. Because that often doesn't come up. You're a business. You're just trying to maximize your revenue for the most part. But you also want to be a good corporate social citizen, you know. Well, at least most companies do. But this, when this issue comes up, like when I advise them or I ask them, so are you willing to draw the line on this particular issue and not change it? And if you don't change it, then you have to be ready for the implications in the future because now you're setting a precedent for what your company will and will not do related to this kind of issue. And so there might be other issues that come down the line in the future. We're going to have to make a similar decision, but this is going to set a precedent for the future. So you have to think very carefully about it. And that's frankly why a lot of companies try and avoid the issue altogether, because Mm -hmm. they know that once they set a precedent, that could come back and bite them very hard in the future. Indeed. And, And, you know, it's like you can push change Maybe you might even call that a kind of cultural imperialism even. Mm -hmm. But, you know, change can also happen on its own. So is it really a company's responsibility to be proactively pushing change? Or is it just the passage of time that's going to eventually solve some of those problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And there's and we've seen examples of that happening, like when Google, for example, refused to operate in China. So they said we're going to work out at Hong Kong instead because they disagreed with the Chinese government's policies on censorship. And that was a very noble thing to do. I applauded them for, for taking that stand because it's a very, very difficult stand to take to be willing to sacrifice a market of that size and potential for a company as large as Google. Now, of course, eventually that fell through. Because they realized it's just it's not a viable position for them to take. They could have stuck to their position, but they decided not to. They still kind of hold it in principle a little bit, but um, it's very, very tricky to work through. And so it's like every single company has to should have, in my view, they should have some conversation around this so that they're ready to deal with it if it comes up. Mm-hmm. So like uh, when you get into games, then, you know, you're talking about really like fictional worlds. How does this like real world stuff transpose onto fictional worlds in games or other works of fiction like mm-hmm. uh, films, et cetera, et cetera? Well, it's what's interesting is that so games, just like a lot of other forms of creative media, often serve as a vehicle for allegory. And so a lot of game narrative is based on allegorical situations. So they'll take like a real battle that happened in human history and they'll kind of transform it a bit and use that as the basis for like having some kind of fantasy battle. A lot of fantasy games or fictional games will make different religions and faiths that are somewhat loosely based on real world ones with Catholicism usually being the number one religion that is copied and modified in some way. There's a lot of ways that they pull over things from the real world into the fictional universe to make it feel like, to give it structure and to give it some sort of feeling. And that's one of the ways they do world building. When they attach 
certain familiarity between what's in the fantasy world back to our real world that gives players the sense that they have a certain orientation about what's going on in the fantasy world. So they'll see certain things and they'll say, okay, yeah, I can tell there's like some kind of faith system here. Maybe I don't know everything about it yet, but I could see people like doing something like they look like they're praying and some people are in robes and all kind of stuff like that. So the, the thing that's important when you do things like that, like if you do copy a an existing faith and kind of modify it for your purposes for a game, you have to make really sure that you're distancing your creation from the inspiration as much as possible. Because if people are able to recognize certain aspects of what you've created as having a source or an inspiration in the real world, if they figure that out, then and then if you have those characters or cultures in your game do things that that real world culture would not do, then that's a huge problem because then you're basically unintentionally making a statement about what the real world culture would do or not do. And people pick up on that stuff very quickly. It's, and a lot of times, you know, this, again, this happens unintentionally. Game developers just kind of do it because they feel it's the right thing for the creative vision. But a lot of times we pull out of our subconscious things that we're aware of, things that we saw in movies, things that we've seen in documentaries, things we've experienced in our world. And so they'll pull things into the universe without even knowing it. I mean, there was an example of this when I was working on Dragon Age, where one of the artists, uh, in one of the conceptual art images of one of the characters, the artist had put the symbol of the Sikh faith on the forehead of this one character. And I noticed it right away. And I asked him, I said, so why is that symbol on his forehead? I mean, he's not a Sikh, obviously. And, it, and the artist said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what the Sikh symbol looks like. And I said, you have to, because that is exactly the same symbol. And so we kind of talked about it. And I said, well, you know, one of the things that's prevalent is that I know like in Seattle where I live, a lot of Sikhs will put like a big symbol on the back of their car or on the side of their car just to kind of identify, which, you know, that's cool. It's just like Christians putting a fish on their car or or whatever. So well, and, and, I said, and I would mention that Sikhs are awesome. They are. They are. And I've, I've been to Amritsar, the Golden Temple in India, which is the center of their faith. It's an amazing place and amazing people. So the, he put this symbol on his forehead. And I, I basically, I figured that probably what happened is that this artist, somewhere in his history, he lodged that symbol in his brain. And during his creative process, it just kind of came out. And, you know, that it happens. That's natural. We draw upon our inspiration. And sometimes we don't know exactly where that inspiration came from. Have you, um, I mean, you've worked with a lot of game developers. Has there been any specific like example where this has not been detected before actually being launched? And I don't know, it backfired or something like that? Yes, there's been a lot of examples like that. There was a case where, well, the game was was technically launched. It was it was going out the door. So this was a game called Kakudu Chojin, which was on the original Xbox, and it was a hand-to-hand fighting game. It was an M-rated game, and a lot of people don't know about the game because the game was eventually pulled from the global market. And the reason it was pulled is because somebody had put in an audio track that was chanting from the Quran into the game and the reason they put the audio in there is because it was just it served as background music for this one character profile one of the fighters in the game and they just said well it sounds cool mm-hmm. and i'm like well yeah it does sound cool but do you, do you even think about what the lyrics are saying or what the source of this is and no they didn't actually and so 
The problem is that this game had that audio file in it, and there were already packaged copies that were literally on their way to stores as this was discovered. And so it's like, okay, what are we supposed to do about this? So what we did is we fixed it right away, obviously, for all the future copies. But for the versions that were going out, what happened is that the decision was eventually just to go ahead and release them in the U.S., and of course, I was advocating for their destruction. <laughs> it's like these yeah. these copies should not go out the door. And I had contacted all the heads of the subsidiaries of the Middle East region of Microsoft, including the head of the Middle East region, to tell them what was going on. And I got, you know, about half of them wrote me back. And I could show the decision makers in the games group saying, look, these people are saying, do not release this. This is going to be a huge problem. And so, but they decided anyway to release it in the U.S. And of course, that's when I kick into geographer mode. And I'm like, you do know that the U.S. has like seven or eight million Muslims at that time. I said, do you know that Detroit's like 50 percent Muslim? You know, I was kind of rattling off statistics. And I'm like, we're not a homogeneous society here. That's actually what defines the United States is that we're not. I'm like, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Well, the game was released, and three months later, we get a, a letter from the government of Saudi Arabia, which was never a target market for this game, and they had found out about it, and they were very, very angry about it, and it became front-page news in the Middle East, and I ended up having to go to Riyadh and Dubai and some other places over there to help do damage control right as the second Gulf War was starting, and it was a mess, and it became such a liability that they decided to finally pull the game from the global market, and that was it. It was done, and it was never released again. And so for developers working on a title, can you imagine that like two years of your life working on this game got torpedoed because one person put an audio file in there and didn't check the source? They didn't care to really check and see what the problem was. And so, you know, this can be a huge problem for game developers or any content developer. In Microsoft's case, they could absorb it. They're a very large company with a lot of resources. So it's not really going to hurt them that much. Um, yeah, there's some PR damage there and some other damage, you know, which they eventually overcome with time. But for like a smaller developer, an indie developer, you you may not release a game again. I mean, that could be so damaging to your profile. So the, the, I guess that would have been sometime before 2005, that example, right? Because that's it was when you 2004, were... exactly. So how have things changed since then? Like, have game developers become a little bit more savvy about this kind of thing? Yeah, I think they have. I mean, and part of that is just the, the fact that society is changing. I mean, we are becoming more aware. Well, it's changing in all kinds of ways. But I think in terms of cultural awareness and more focus on the damaging, how damaging stereotypes can be and how damaging this can be in general. I mean, you know, not being respectful of your audience. Social media has changed the landscape dramatically because now, whereas before you had to wait for the reaction to finally get to you, kind of making its wave across the globe, now you get it instantly right in your face like a fire hose. So if you do something wrong, you're going to hear about it immediately. Where conversely, if you do something really well, you're also going to get hear about it immediately and get a lot of praise. So the social media hammer has changed the dynamics significantly for how these things work. And of course, it also has the negative problem of kind of whipping people up into a big 
commotion over things, sometimes when it's not exactly warranted, because all it takes is just the rumor of something or say, hey, did you hear what they did? And of course, you know, it just kind of expands and, and kind of the monsters out of the box and it just kind of grows into something where you hear a lot of fiction about it. Like even that example I just gave, I, I remember seeing a lot of guesses and stories about around the issue. I'm like, no, that's not right at all. That's not what happened. But that's what people do. They speculate and they rumor and they kind of spread it around. So it's it's a challenging environment. If you get something wrong today, I mean, because of that feedback loop that's almost instantaneous and it's global. But I, I do think, generally speaking, there is greater awareness from a lot of developers because it just it just takes time for industries and developers to understand, especially as they constantly are trying to expand into new markets and a lot of emerging markets, that they have to be more sensitive and open-minded to this kind these kind of issues. And I think very slowly that they are. Mm-hmm. You were talking before that you do a lot of cartography work, and I actually saw this video on your website. I think you did a speech at an event where you talked about drawing fictional worlds and that there is a Google map of Westeros. So yes. I understand like how, for example, um, symbols or certain things you have in a game would relate to culturalization. But what does, for example, the Google map of Westeros have to do with culturalization? (laughs) Well, that was an example. That was my world building talk that I gave at GBC Europe in 2016. Mm -hmm. And that was a different kind of talk. That was the first time I did a talk like that because a lot of my talks have often been about culturalization from the reactive standpoint, like here are things you should not do or things you need to think about. But I decided to turn it around and talk more about how you actually build worlds because cartographers, that's exactly what we do. We we rebuild the world. We select and generalize and decide how we're going to take, you know, facts that are out there in the real world and distill them down into a map. And so we basically do world building. That's exactly what we do. And I've seen for many years working in the game industry, a lot of parallels between my work as a cartographer and what the world builders do in the process of, of designing game worlds you know everything from the physical universe to the climate to the cultures to everything all the different layers that are in there and so making that connection i think is really important with the world building aspect because you know you have to think about these things from that particular from the angle i'm trying to figure out how i want to say this from the world building angle you know it's it's not just one simple exercise okay we have characters and we have an environment boom that's it it's like worlds are actually multi-layered and you have to decide as the, as the creator what layers are going to be appropriate which ones do you need and then for every one of those layers whether it's like okay we need a faith layer basically we're going to have faith in our game in some form okay great well that's going to be that's something you're going to have to think about so all of that is to say going back to the westeros map Westeros was an example of world building. It's it's a great example of world building, just like I also had in that presentation. I talked a lot about Tolkien's map of Middle Earth, which was actually the inspiration for me to become a cartographer, was his map. And the maps of fictional places like Westeros and Narnia and, and Middle Earth and all those kinds of maps, what they demonstrate is that the author and the originator, they're trying to make you feel like this place really existed. And maps are often a way of doing that because we are so ingrained. When we see a map, we expect it to be factual. And even, you know, so I like I liked that Google Maps 
style version of Westeros because we're so used to seeing Google Maps style today and we just rely on it all the time. I thought it was funny because you just kind of see that style and like, yeah, okay, Westeros. Yeah, I've been there. I, I know all about Westeros. That's true. I got that feeling as well when I saw that map. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's a very familiar place, especially if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, you're familiar with the geography of the lands in that in that fiction, then, you know, you look at that like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. So touching on like proactive culturalization and fictional worlds and fictional maps, are we to a place where the world building is like customized for, for example, the environment or the architecture that present in, in the world? where they will customize that for certain regions of the world? And is that going to become a thing if it's not already? Yes, I think that's becoming more common. That's as, as, you know, part of it has been the fact that a lot of our production processes have gotten more efficient so we can actually more efficiently create different realities of the same game. Whether you're reskinning the game or whether you're actually building different architectures within the game. I haven't seen a lot of games that go to that length. A lot of times the kind of customization we're talking about is a little more superficial, but it's noticeable. So it could be character costumes and things like that. It might be certain things that are in the environment, like certain objects that are in there that might be unique to a certain country or a region um, to make it feel like this feels more local to me. You know, that kind of thing is happening more and more. And I've seen, I've, I've worked on several projects where the, and, and this tends to happen more on the mobile side because the mobile games tend to be a little more agile in terms of their ability to customize for locale. It's a lot harder to do that with a massive RPG, like something like Skyrim or, you know, one of those kinds of games. But for a lot of mobile games, they have more agility to do that. And so, like, I worked on one recently where they did a bunch of, they did a whole bunch of events in the game that were focused around Asian holidays, particularly Japanese holidays. And so that was really interesting to work on because they were creating content that was going to show up in the game that's, that related to those holidays. And there was another one I worked on where they were expanding into the Middle East and it was kind of a medieval style kind of fantasy game. And what they did, I mean, a lot of, of course, in the Western versions, the women had mostly, you know, very, you know, bare midriff, kind of ridiculous armor that makes no sense. You know, bikini, bikini chainmail, and and stupid things like that. <laughs> you know, but what they did for the Middle East, because of the different culture and values there, they had to cover up these female characters. And so what they did is they designed different armor sets that were very specific. They weren't just for like like one armor set for the Middle East, they actually modified them enough so that they were more unique. Like there was a set for Saudi Arabia, there was a set for UAE, there was a set for Bahrain. And I thought that was awesome. I really thought that was great that they went through that length. And I got to say, the costumes they made for these characters, the women were fully armored head to toe and they looked amazing. And I, I asked them, I said, are you going to release these in North America? Because I sure hope you do, because they look really good. And I don't know if they ever did. But that's another example of where they went to that length. That's interesting because uh, culturalization, when you think about it, like we're mostly talking about like foreign lands, but like e even in the United States with like the Me Too movement, for example, maybe we also have to think about culturalization for our society as it changes. Do you think that there's going to be changes in, in those kinds of costumes for the North American market too? 
I do. I think that's inevitable. And I do think more and more companies are definitely hearing the message that, you know, if you really want to build inclusive content, then you need to think broader than your typical demographic. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of people tend to be behind on the reality of who the typical demographic is. I mean, you know, when I talk to people in the public and I tell them that there's more 30 and 40 something women playing games today than teen males, they just don't believe me. But that's the facts. I mean, that's our empirical data that we're getting out of our industry. There's a massive demographic out there of people, both women and other underrepresented groups, who will love to play games that represent them better. I mean, the whole, you know, I'm sure everybody's been following the buzz and the, the incredible success of Black Panther, the Marvel film. You know, as an example, this is what happens when you build inclusive content, when you make a character or make characters or make a world that is inclusive to underrepresented people. They, If it's done well, then they'll respond to it, you know, and it works. I mean, that's and it's not just about making money. It's about making content that serves a certain population that typically is underrepresented and serving more stories and dig deep into other cultures that a lot of us have, don't have much exposure to. I mean, Black Panther film is an example, right? I saw it. I really loved it. And I had people asking me, so what do you think about how they represented the culture? And I said, well, it's not my culture to judge. So I'm not going to answer that question. I mean, this is not my culture. It's not my heritage. But I loved it. It looks awesome. And I love the characters. So what else can I say? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, your main part in culturalization is in game development and like all the game stuff and i i see how it would be important for games and movies and all these kind of fictional worlds but where else do you apply culturalization i mean i see that it's for basically any type of content but mm -hmm. how would you do that well it's there's so many different ways that it can be applied i mean you know we've talked about games we've talked about some map issues sometimes it's something as simple as using the right color scheme because you know colors have different meanings in different cultures and so this is something that has come up in software before and it sometimes is discussed in the context of localization but you know color usage is important the use of gestures oftentimes in icons like i gave a talk at facebook headquarters a couple of years ago in which I pointed out to them that the, the famous thumbs up gesture is actually offensive in some countries because it's the same as the middle finger. It's kind of too late now because that's like the icon on a Facebook. <laughs> But, you know, it's just that's the way it is. So there's a lot of things that just when you're making software or making other things, I mean, one of the most simple things that I see so many companies make a big mistake about, it's the country list. So if they have a list of countries Like if you have a form for people to fill out or if you have a list for whatever reason, and a lot of companies have this on their websites or elsewhere, the country list often contains entities that are not countries. Like they'll put Hong Kong in there, they'll put Taiwan in there, they'll put, you know, Western Sahara in there. None of those are countries. And so Taiwan in particular is very sensitive because if you have a product going to China and you put Taiwan in a list that's called, quote, country – I mean, that can, that will get your product banned in China because that's a political statement. You're telling the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China, that you consider Taiwan to be its own country. That's how simple the issue is. And yet I see so many companies make that mistake. Mm. So what I often recommend that they do is call it is call the list country slash region. And then you can have all kinds of things in there because is Taiwan a region or a country? Well, 
If you're from Taiwan and you're pro-independence, you can say well, we're a country. If you're in China, then you can say Taiwan's a region of China. You basically defer that perception to the end user instead of you having to be responsible for what that perception is. And so the more you can do that in anywhere, in your software, in your content, the better off you are. Because basically, you know, some people say, well, that's sidestepping the issue. It's like, yeah, exactly. Because who are you to call Taiwan, whether it's a country or region? Do you have that expertise? It's like, do any of us want to, you know, assert that position? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, like our company officially recognizes the, yeah, <laughs> the exactly. Taiwan. Like, that's, yeah, exactly. That's crazy. It's, it's, it's the same problem with names, first name, last name. Uh, like mm-hmm. there's the movement towards full name, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some names are, you know, written the the other way around or there's not really a mm-hmm. first name or last name. I think Vietnamese names are like that, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and Korean names as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a question to go back to the, the games thing and, and really on the, the whole subject. So mostly we're talking about making like inclusive content, like uh, like you mentioned, Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there are or if you've encountered, uh, particularly in games, but possibly elsewhere, any, so to speak, bad actors that rather than making inclusive content are exploiting stereotypes to make exclusive content to sell to particular groups of people who enjoy, for whatever reasons, that Mm -hmm. exclusivity. Yeah, that certainly does happen. You know, I know that Grand Theft Auto has often got criticism for that. Um, They often are, you know, complained about as being like the poster child of of the worst kind of game. You know, my my feeling about Grand Theft Auto, I love those games. I think Grand Theft Auto 4 and 5 were amazing games. But they also, they have adult themes and they take a particular position. And it's no different to me than like for people who like Martin Scorsese films, like I do, like if you want, you know, if you go to a Martin Scorsese film, you pretty much know what you're getting. Lots and lots of F-bombs and profanity and a lot of blood and violence. And if you are okay with that, then fine. You're, you can go enjoy that form of art. And in the same way, games as an art form should be allowed that same kind of freedom as they are. I mean, the Supreme Court ruled in 2011 in the United States that games are protected free speech. And so my stance on that kind of thing is that I believe fervently that game developers should be should be free to make any kind of game they want. I don't care how offensive it is and how wrong it is. I'm not going to play it. And most other people aren't going to play it either. And it's not going to sell either. And it's going to create a really terrible reputation for them. But sometimes they don't care about that. It's probably going to find a fringe audience or it's going to find the audience that is getting it strictly because it is controversial. And that's happened before as well. I think they deserve the freedom to do it. But at the same time, as I advise a lot of game developers, if that's your path, you have to be ready to defend yourself because you are going to get a lot of backlash about this. And so you need to decide. Now, if you if that game is truly reflecting your values and that's what your values are, then you also have to be prepared to ship. You know, you're showing the world that you have some values that are pretty vile. And so, again, you're going to get backlash. And so you better be prepared for it. You know, and so I'm not defending their values because that's a whole other problem. It's like if they're exposing their values through the game content they're creating, that's really unfortunate because I'd rather not see it. I'd Like I said, I'm not going to play it, but some people will. 
And there's always going to be people who are inevitably are going to agree with their values in some way or another. And so I think, you know, we, we see that in film, we see that in literature, we see that in all kinds of other creative art forms. I don't see any reason why games are, are going to be different, you know, so it's just a reality that we have to face that there will be games that people create that have a spe specific purpose that is not necessarily going to be inclusive or enlightening. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think, I mean, you, you work with the companies during, I guess, also during the content creation process? Or afterwards, I don't know, probably both, I guess. What's the best way to really be proactive about this and take culturalization into account when creating content? Well, the best thing that people can do in my, so basically the way my engagement works with a project, and this is a, is typically a, a, one of the major differences between culturalization and localization, because with the latter, typically you have to wait until the content is complete enough so that you can begin translation, because otherwise you're just, you know, getting frustrated because they're constantly changing things, but that does happen. With culturalization, what I typically do, especially on game projects, but really with any project I work on, is my better value starts at the very beginning. So I will sit down with the writers and the artists and the producers and I'll talk about, you know, let's talk about what world you're creating and who's in it and what happens in this world and what the goals are and what the player's going to do and all of those kind of factors. So I can understand basically what is the world they're building and what are the particular areas that might be risk areas in terms of where things, you know, might become problematic Like if they say we're going to make a game that's, you know, religious in nature and I'm like, okay, well, right away, that's a flag and it's going to be historical. Okay, there's another flag, <laughs> you know, on and on it goes. Mm -hmm. And so I sit down with them. I talk through their assumptions and, and basically the, the pre-concept phase. And because at that stage, I can help tremendously in doing course correction that is very cheap and inexpensive to do because you're not having to change the actual game because you haven't created it yet. So that's where we can kind of sit down and talk about certain things in the script or the vision of the game. And then if, if it goes past that phase, then typically what happens is I will be, I will work with the team and they'll send me content as it gets finalized. So they'll like, they'll send me the characters, they'll send me the environments and objects and all those other things. So this like, for example, all the games I worked at, at Bioware, um, they are a client of mine. I worked for four years on Star Wars The Old Republic as an example. And so throughout those four years, I reviewed all of the characters, all of the objects in the games, the script, everything. And basically I was going back to them with different spot checks of things I'd found. And every time I find something, I assign a severity level to it, where severity one means it's a ship stopper and you should not let this out the door without fixing it. And a sev two is, is you might need to fix it. You might not. It depends on context. It depends on other factors that we need to investigate. And a sev three is basically, I don't think this is going to be an issue, but you should probably just be aware of it. And so I flag these things as the content is being created. And then it goes back and they either fix it or they decide what they're going to do. And, uh, so basically with my job, by the time we get to the end of the project, there's very little for me to do. And everything should be pretty much the way it should be for ready for release. Every once in a while, though, it, there may be a developer on the team or something else comes up where they slip in some content that I didn't see. Nobody you know, passed it by me that has a problem. And so it gets in the released game and then it's a big mess. So yeah. that has happened less and less, but it does happen. 
but your preferred way is definitely to get you involved at the very beginning of the content creation and not just once it's done. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can be far more effective and helpful at the beginning. I mean, certainly I've worked on a lot of projects where I'm helping at the end where we're cleaning up a big mess that, that's been created or even a post-release problem, which is even a worse mess. I've done all of those scenarios, but that's um, when I can be the biggest help at the beginning. So do you have a cool collection of artboards and stuff from games you worked on that people sent you like drawings and things? Well, I don't, not physical ones. No. Uh, no. Okay. Plus, plus those those things are property of those companies. So right, I'm, right. I'm just the person who gets to view it. So yeah. They don't sneak you, <laughs> sneak you any hard copies that you can frame and hang up. Well, huh? no. Occasionally, I'll they'll give me stuff. You know, especially if I ask for it. You know, sometimes yeah. I I get to work on franchises that I really really like, like Star Wars or Halo or things like that. And so yeah. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part, no. I just get to see, and it's mostly digital copies. Cool, cool, yeah. Because you could have a pretty neat memorabilia collection. Um, oh yeah, over time. <laughs> yeah, and I do have a lot of virtual artifacts of all of these issues that caused problems. So I've got you know just huge, huge, like mental library of so many issues that have happened over the years. Cool, cool. You did mention localization. Do you think that with the work of culturalization that this is affecting the work that people in localization do as well? I think so to some degree. I mean, I've actually had several localization companies outsource a culturalization request to me. So that's showing me that more and more companies are making the request. They're understanding that this is something that they want done or, you know, the localization companies typically will come to me because they just don't have the expertise or they don't have time or some other factor because, you know, their expertise is language and that's not my expertise at all. So I often will tell people I basically deal with everything that's non-linguistic in nature, even though I do I do deal with language issues every once in a while. Like on the game Jade Empire, I helped create the language that was in the game that's called Tho Fan. But uh, because they decided for that game, they didn't want to use Chinese or any existing Asian language. So they basically made one up. Oh, language, uh, fictional languages. That's an interesting, uh, yeah, interesting thing. Yeah. How um, oh, I don't even know what I want to ask about that. Uh, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. I mean, there's actually some great resources out there about fictional languages. And I know there's linguists who specialize in this. And I know because, you know, like Game of Thrones has a linguist and, uh, you know, a lot of other like Star Trek has a linguist for for Klingon and all the other languages. I, I, I'm fascinated by that. I think that's really cool. I mean, it's kind of analogous to like my love of building, of using cartography, my expertise to do world building by making a map. You know, they do the same thing by using language. And it kind of goes to a point that I've often stressed with, with content creators that when you're building a world, you the best thing you can do is rely upon your best strength. And so Tolkien is a great example of this because – Looking at his map now as a professional cartographer, it's okay. <laughs> the geomorphology is is kind of bad, and I have problems with certain aspects of his world, the way he built it on the map. But what he did to realize that world in such a great way is he used his strength, which was language. So he built the cultures of the elves and the dwarves and the Numenorians and all these other races in his world 
using language as the basis for making that culture feel real, which is very analogous to our world, because in our world, that's the same thing. Language is so intertwined with culture. And so that's part of what why, to me, the Lord of the Rings books are just, they're so great, is because it, it has it's been brought to life in a really deep way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, the connection between fantasy and, and culture, like, uh, well, and to some degree, like science fiction, like I, I'm thinking of Star Trek, too, you know, where like, you know, Star Trek is basically, you know, the TV show is about, um, I don't know, culturalization in a way, right? It's like mm-hmm. every every yeah. episode, they encounter a new culture. And and the episode tells us something about ourselves. Do you think, uh, I don't know what I want to ask about this, like, because, you know, it's not like fantasy is the most popular genre in the world. It's I think it's becoming no. more and more popular now. Do you think that fantasy, one reason it's becoming more popular is because the world is becoming more inclusive and people are more aware of these issues and enjoy seeing other worlds that are sort of taking these issues up? I think so. I think there's a couple levels to it. One is that there is just a general acceptance that the geeks now rule the world (laughs) to some degree. So we finally won, Um, especially for those of us who are old enough to remember the days where it was definitely not cool to be a geek at all. But now it's totally cool to openly enjoy Star Wars and Star Trek and Marvel and everything else and to wear it proudly and all that kind of stuff. Um, for the most part, there's exceptions. But I think that's part of it is just kind of the general the general consumption of media by the public has shifted significantly. You know, and that's let's face it, there's companies like Disney and others who've done a very, very uh, astute job of pushing that, you know. And so that's part of it. But I do think the other aspect is the fact that a lot of these fantasy worlds, fantasy, sci-fi, all of that, they are built on allegory. They are built on reflecting, like Star Trek is a great example. I mean, and Gene Roddenberry was always very open about it, that this is basically the future that I want, you know, where multiracial people working together and the race part doesn't matter at all. That's not even a factor. It's just, it's just implicit in the universe they live in. And that's what made that so awesome. And, you know, a lot of the stories, especially in the old Star Trek show, but even in the the more recent ones, they use allegory all the time to, to reflect on current social issues in much the same way like the Twilight Zone series in the 60s. Um, you know, more than half the shows dealt with the Cold War in some fashion. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating how we see that. So like if for people now, like if they've seen the show Black Mirror on Netflix, it's kind of a terrifying show in the same way that it's reflecting on our obsession with social media and technology today. And um, it's showing us a future that can be right around the corner that may not be very nice. <laughs> and um, so I think what's great is that because so many of these properties show a, a certain level of inclusion and honestly, for people like I was one of those kids growing up who didn't feel like I fit in any of these other groups. So I completely gravitated towards the geek crowd because in that crowd, your color, your gender, all of that, that doesn't matter. What matters is your love of the thing like your love of star trek is what brings you together as a group your love of star wars your love of whatever it is of gaming or something it's not about your color or your gender or any of that and i think that because that culture i think has become more prevalent today i think it's a huge strength that we're seeing and um you know i think it's gonna just hopefully i i I think we're gonna see more and more of the ideals that are reflected in a lot of these fictional universes reflected in our universe where people say you know it's it's okay to be different 
Right. Definitely. That would be so great. If that's what defines a geek, then everyone should become a geek. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we should probably wrap this up, but I actually got one more question for you. Um, mm -hmm. So you, I mean, you studied geography and cartography, but still you kind of stumbled into culturalization and the game developing thing a bit. Do you think, or what is the way to get into culturalization? I mean, I don't think there are many people out there doing what you do. No. Uh, no. And it seems like it's more of an ongoing research than an actual study. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, so basically, yeah, I've, I've mentored many, many people who want to do this work. Um, I meet a lot of people when they hear about what I do. They're like, oh, that's my dream job, especially a lot of social scientists, <laughs> people out there, a lot of students, grad students. And basically, you know, yeah, I, I kind of quote Indiana Jones. I'm sort of making this up as I go. I had no career path for this, but then I look back and I kind of see, well, yeah, I can understand how my decisions throughout my career have kind of led me to this point. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who want to pursue this field. And basically what I tell them is that, you know, one of the things you have to do is just be a voracious observer of culture. You need to be curious. I mean, that's part of what fuels my interest in the subject is I'm just insatiably curious about everything, but especially about cultures and politics and interactions of human beings with technology and all these other things. And so, and I, I also consume a lot of popular media because that also informs my thinking. You know, I'm a total geek about all kinds of stuff. And so all of those things kind of come to a confluence that serves my ability to work in games and to work in the creative media like that. And I think there's a lot of people out there I've met who kind of fit that same description to some degree. So finding how you leverage that in a actual job, basically like what I, what I had to do and the advice I've given a lot of people is basically if you want to do this kind of work, you you basically have to start somewhere. Like I started at Microsoft and kind of cultivated my skills inside Microsoft for the benefit of the company and also obviously for the benefit of myself. So what I often recommend people do is find a company that you would like to work for. It may not be the ideal job, but find a job that you're willing to do in that company because I can guarantee it's not going to be a culturalization job. So find something in that company that you can tolerate and you, you're willing to do, you know, especially students who want to get their foot in the door and start building a career. And I say, but once you're in that company, you can be far more effective inside a company than you can from outside. And so once you're in there, you become a persistent virus and you try and infect yeah. them with your good ideas. Because if you see processes that can be improved, if you see areas like culturalization, things they're not doing, but you know for a fact you can help them out, you have to become persistent and be diplomatic, but you need to be persistent and try and see if you can change the internal culture, which is exactly what I did at Microsoft. But keep in mind, that took me a long time to do. And even when I wrote the proposal to create the geopolitical team, it took me nine months to finally get approval. I had to shop the idea around to multiple VPs throughout the company until I finally got to one who instantly said yes. And I tend to believe the reason he said yes, one of the key reasons, is because he was the only VP I talked to who was not from the United States. Hmm. He was from South Africa. And when I pitched my idea to him, he kind of sat back and said, I thought we're already doing this. And I'm like, <laughs> no, that's why I'm here. So he's like, well, we need to do this. And I'm like, I agree. And that was that. So it, it's really important to kind of, you have to, 
interject this idea. We're not yet at that point where companies are going to think about this proactively. So you really have to step in and be assertive and persistent about trying to get companies to think about it. And like I said, I'm at a point where it's easier for me to do that as an external consultant. But for most people starting out, the best way you're probably going to do it is by getting inside a company and doing it from within. Totally. That's great advice. Well, this has been an awesome podcast. It's an amazing subject to talk about. It's a good part of the world to try to be more inclusive and more respectful and, and more interesting and more entertaining for for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I agree. I mean, really, my whole point in this work, I mean, I do kind of emphasize the revenue building aspect because that's what tends to get companies to listen. But really, the reason I do it, it's for respect, respect of the cultures out there. I mean, we all want to respect each other more. And I think, you know, if we as content creators just find it within ourselves to show respect to these cultures and not just, you know, blindly use stereotypes or blindly rip off elements from them, but actually thoughtfully do it. I mean, that's really what it's all about to me. That's really great. Uh, I totally agree with that. And I think that's that's like a really good way of looking at your work and what you do, because, I mean, that just shows that you really like what you do. And I think that's what it's all about. I think that's a wrap up on this episode of the International Bus with Kate Edwards. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great talking to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And for those people listening, WordBee is an awesome translation management system. Uh, You should totally check it out. 